Welcome to the Untold Podcast, capturing the culture's imagination through speculative fiction. I'm your host, Nathan James Norman. Well, the UPC Flash Fiction Contest is long closed, and judging has now closed. We'll be tallying up the scores shortly, and we plan on bringing you five original stories all in July. In a few days, I'm boarding a plane for my annual trip to Vietnam. I'm taking my mic with me. Not sure what I'm going to be recording there, but it should be fun. For now, we have a larger-than-usual story. Our story today is by returning author and supporter Jen Finelli. Actually, no, that's not true. Between then and now, like Gandalf the Grey, like Little Mario, like Kirby sucking in his enemies, our beloved author has leveled up to become Jen Finelli, M.D. That's right. In addition to the ever-increasing body of work Jen produces, she somehow found time to get her medical degree, and I think you'll feel that in today's story. Jen Finelli is a world-traveling, award-nominated sci-fi author who's ridden a motorcycle in a monsoon, discovered murals and poetry in underground urban caves, explored jungles and coral deserts, and hung out with everyone from dead babies to prostitutes to senators. She longs for stories that speak truth about the human condition and shine on people often hidden in the shadows of modern fiction. She's a practicing MD, but when she grows up, she wants to be a superhero. So a portion of all writing proceeds goes to create a jungle clinic for those who can't afford medical care, with a projected opening date of 2022. If you want cancer-fighting zombie fiction, dinosaur picture books, scientists jumping into volcanoes, or talking cars and peyote, you might like Jen. Try her out with free tales in a link in the show notes. You can also help Jen make more things to save the world by joining her on her Patreon page at patreon.com slash becominghero. Other works, including a number of free things, are listed on her website, buyjenfinelli.com. You can find her on Twitter at Peter Pan, that's P-E-T-R-3 Pan. Just head over to the show notes for all the direct links. Listeners of the Untold Podcast will remember Jen Finelli from episode 62, To Refuse Blood, which somehow never lit the flame of controversy like I expected it to. So now, without further ado, the Untold Podcast is proud to present... Apocalypse Medicine by Jen Finelli. Fear is beautiful because it drives me into your arms. There's a lot to fear in a world of poisoned flesh where time and space suddenly mean nothing. It was weeks ago or seconds ago that I sat bored out of my mind in 7 a.m. morning rounds, giving and taking patient reports in the old Episcopal Hospital, praying to you, half in jest, just to make the attendings lecture end. Oh, it ended all right. Now I stand in a narrow 17th century German alleyway under a blood moon. There is no 7 a.m. and no end or beginning. There is a man with wolf heads instead of hands and feet. They turn on him, eating him alive. His screams are drowned out by the screeching naked woman to my left. She's at once translucent and then solid, sometimes in a Civil War bonnet and sometimes in a 1920s bob, but always screeching and reaching like a Japanese hungry ghost. Then. There's the baby behind me, melting and oozing across the cobblestone toward my ankles. 
I'm a family doctor. I introduce myself to the trio. There's no one around to correct me and mention I haven't finished residency. Are you family? Soul-twisting agony, replies the wolf-headed man. Yeah. I draw a scythe instead of a stethoscope. I leap for the wolf-man first. Swish, schlick, flat, and chop off the arms and legs attacking him. He weeps in relief. The wolf-heads are already regrowing, and he'd bleed out if they didn't. But I'm suddenly busy. The see-through time traveler claws at my eyes with her gaudy 1920s rings. She's solidifying. I miss time. The butt of my staff goes straight through her body while she's still a mist, and the wood ages to withered dust. I'm left clutching my blade on a very short handle. I'm tempted to say something about length, and what she said. I grin. I dodge backwards. I'll distract her, talk her into calming down enough to seek my help. But I can see you're upset, so I won't joke around. Let's talk about your feelings. How are you? She rips her hair out and roars. Okay, I just wanted to clarify, I'm not mocking you. Her graceful face spins upside down on her neck and teeth sprout from her cheeks. The psych patients are always the difficult ones. I know, I know. I tend to sound joking or sarcastic when I'm nervous. I'm nervous right now. We all are, right? I suddenly have nightmares that aren't mine, and I don't remember the time. The nightmares say they're real things, memories that happened over the past few weeks, but I'm pretty sure I was in the hospital seconds ago. It's a risky technique. When the physician shares his own experience, it can appear self-centered or take attention away from the patient's chief complaint. Always bring it back to the patient. You feel out of time too, right? Trapped in a loop? She flies at me. Nervous? I duck. Confused? I ask. She sails over me as I dodge. A chill tickles my scalp as her toe grazes my hair. A sideway glance in the cracked barber's shop window shows I've got a streak of premature white hair. Man. It's alright, we don't have to talk about it if you don't want to. I soothe. But she's taking everything I say the wrong way. And now the wolf heads are full grown again and charging for me, dragging the poor man attached across the stones through broken glass. Dang it, woman, I mutter. I've never beaten a ghost. I need to get this other guy out of here before he dies. I leap backwards over the wolf heads, duck again as another die job ages my scalp. Maybe I should make a break for it. My heel hits something solid and wet. I fall hard. Crap! I forgot about the baby. I can't think with all this screaming. I feel the acidic baby blob sucking the shoe off my ankle. I'm flailing my scythe at the wolves, breathing hot drool on my arms and face while cold wraps around me and stiffness envelops my bones because she's on top of me too, and in seconds I'll be too old to fight and oh man will I age to dust before I even get the chance to be eaten alive. I call your name. Back in the hospital, the apocalypse begins with moss creeping up the wall. I remember where I was September 11th, but I can't remember exactly where I am or was as the world ends. 
reality flickers and I see my attending's skull through his skin, and the resident supervising me suddenly looks like a pimply teenager. The flicker stops, and we all carry on as if nothing happened. We're all tired. None of us will admit to seeing things. We go on for a long time, not admitting to seeing things, keeping up appearances, until one by one they die, or mummify, or disappear altogether as aged brick creeps up the plaster walls of the hospital. And strains of polka then swing Then eerie music from a culture I don't understand echo in the air and in my mind. Got it. I manage to roll over out of the pile of monsters. The wolves jerk forward and chomp where my ribs were. The ghost screams at them as they writhe in her body space. Under the ghost's mist, the baby ages to a teenager and oozes after me. Pick up this man! I yell at the baby as I struggle to my feet and hobble around the mess of constantly regenerating wolves and constantly aging woman. Pick up this man! The teen blinks at me and burps up my boot. Pick up this man and follow me! I yell, pointing to the patient I am now too arthritic to lift as he screams just outside the supernatural wrestling match in his arms and legs. I'm going to cut off his wolves, and you're going to pick him up. Now! It's just a baby, but it's a hungry, goopy, monster baby, and it follows me as I circle the fight and stop by the man. The baby oozes over the guy, who's now screaming even more, and I chop the wolves. The schlick of his limbs already congealing and reforming is almost inaudible under the splash of the baby's flesh. The woman's scream as she descends violently on the chopped off wolves she hates. Hurry this way! I glance at my watch as it starts again. I need the baby in shelter before it dissolves the guy's skin and before the ghost gets tired of the chopped off wolves and follows us. From my nightmare memories, I know I have five minutes. Five minutes. The same time it took me to intubate a patient awake the first time I tried alone in the ER. When the attending was on another case and I called out but no one came. No one smarter than poor stupid me. I was the worst option this patient could have had but I was his only and best. So I took the hook and tube in hand and with a lot of fighting and choking and retrying and staring at those pink orchid-like epiglottal folds waiting for my shove. One step at a time, just one step at a time, almost there. I'll get you fixed up, this is just temporary. I talked to the gurgle screaming wolf man in the blob like I talked to the guy sputtering under my first intubation, walking him through the suffering I am causing to save his life. Thank you. We make it inside. It's an abandoned stone home littered with corpses, just down the street from the fight but 
She won't follow us in here just yet. She cannot see through the old-fashioned yellow oil paper windows. Time. Minutes. Minutes are all I need. The first room we enter is a bedroom, furnished as I imagine a pauper's home in colonial-era Europe. Everything hacked together of crude, heavy, sand-colored wood save the dark, varnished crib in the corner. The crib's ornate moldings draw my eye. There's something still in it. But the noise. The wolves are puppies again, gnawing against the blob as the man inside kicks and screams. The blob begins to cry, classic indigestion, and the puppies yap and yap. Shh! I hiss, my eyes on the window, for the silvery shadow moans down the street outside. Shh! The blob's attracted to my hiss. It pops upright into human teen form toddles uncertainly a few steps and collapses into mush, leaving the wolfman behind. Good, good baby, I whisper. I chop off the puppies and as they whimper and die, I kick their dead heads towards my liquefying helper. Eat that instead. My fingers are already ripping the bedsheet I've found and wrapping it around the wolfman's stumps tightening pieces of it around sticks to make tourniquets in his armpits and inguinal folds. His moans soften, a suckling sound like an infant at its mother's teat emanates from the pacified blob. Quiet at last. If I can stop the bleeding, I think they won't grow back, I whisper to Wolfie as we ease him into the bed. They seem to be your body's new response to trauma, he croaks. I... I... Shh, 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 It's okay. Should I cauterize the ends? Would that additional trauma make the wolves grow again or kill the tissue so they can't? There's no guidance for this. Nothing I can look up on PubMed or ask the American Medical Association. No one's ever cured a wolf hands man before. No one. Sterilizing. He wasn't born with wolf hands. He acquired them during the apocalypse like an infection. I tie the sheets tight, and the limb bleeding stops. Wait right here, I say as if he could do anything else. I like to give all my patients the sensation of choice, illusion or not. I run across the room, jump over the blob and over the mummified, blackened corpse that's propped up in the doorway like the thinker, and I stumble into the kitchen as my patient mutters delirious nothings behind me. Carved cabinets rise over a dirt floor scattered with dull pewter utensils. I trip over a bonneted mummy woman and an old iron furnace, surprised to find a 1950s sink. It's running. But no one has time for time disparities, and for all I know, the sink will disappear in a few seconds as the anomaly in our broken universe sorts itself out. I rummage onward, whispering to you now. Alcohol. Alcohol. Everyone has alcohol, right? Vodka would be great. I hope your invisible eyes watch me through time and space. I hope you're there. I hope you see into this stranger's cabinets, past the rotting doors hanging on the cold ancient stone that's grown like fungus over the paneled house that used to be here in the post-World War II future or the pioneer past when this was a Colorado farming homestead, or millennial metro suburbia, or wherever we were before the nightmare. 
vodka. I snatch it, slide back into the bedroom, and apply liberally to the bulges on the stumps. I tighten the band-aids. I'll suffocate those wolves. I splash the burning liquid across the man's wounds, and he begins to stir and fight and open his mouth to, No! I hiss. Don't scream. She'll hear you. Be brave, man. Be brave. I soak a wad of torn sheet in the vodka and stuff it into his mouth. Suck. It'll numb the pain. Suck. Vodka soaks my fingers. The bed dribbles down his face. Everything reeks of its sweet, piercing pungency. A memory of a party I regret fades under what is now. The clock ticks on the wall, and the man's heavy breaths mark time with it. I glance behind me, to where the blob baby quivers over the dead puppies. My wristwatch confirms. Five minutes have passed since we chopped the last wolves. Record time. No regrowth. <sighs> A sigh of relief tickles my chest. Not yet, I murmur. Not done yet. Hemorrhage controlled, back to the ABCs. Next, airway. Clear. It's been clear until just now when I gave him alcohol. Take out that wet sheet ball and it's clear. Chest rising and falling equally. That's B. Breathing. C. Blood pressure I can't take. But his pulse is weak, fast, heart rate 110 at least, and he's diaphoretic. Skin cool to the touch, respirations at 34, 35, 36 per minute. Assessment, hypovolemia from blood loss. We need two large bore peripheral IVs stat. I'm back in the kitchen, tripping over stone floors that were once cheap yellowing vinyl. A crib means a baby bottle. One ounce is 30 milliliters, and the bottle should have ounces marked on it. So I can use it to deliver a calculated rehydration dose. The tip of the nipple can sit in my syringe. I can hold the whole apparatus up like an IV bag and squeeze to approximate a good maintenance drip rate. That's later, when he's stable. Right now, forget calculating maintenance. Two liters, stat, open wide. This is trauma, not friendly neighborhood urgent care. Still, no baby bottle. One particularly moldy white plastic cabinet almost falls off in my hands. Matches, matches, I need to turn on this freaking wood stove. Boil salt and water for a 0.9 normal saline solution and also boil water to sterilize the two pocket syringes I carry. And I can't find anything in someone else's kitchen and what are these torture implants? Where is the baby bottle and why don't you help me? Shh, one step at a time. That's how we did things in the rural clinic in northern Mexico during earthquake relief. I thought I'd never see anything so horrible. But I learned to make my own saline. And to do one thing at a time. The water boils. And I rip the plungers out of the syringes and plunk them into the pot to sterilize. And you know what? I just realized where the baby bottle is. Ugh. I slink back into the bedroom with a gulp and look into the crib. The baby bottle is suspended in the stiff, mummified hands of its tiny, unfortunate owner. Still wedged into her dry mouth from the moment the world went to hell. Hey there, I whisper. 
Maintaining the humanity of the dead keeps me centered. I'm just going to borrow this for a second. I pull the bottle. <laughs> Her hands break off with a puff of dust, still wrapped around the bottle. A strand of serious goo drizzles from her mouth to the bottle tip as a waft of rotten something taints the air. Okay, good talk, baby. Feel better soon. Boil this disgusting thing. Boil the hell out of it. Then, next step, explore the man's abdomen to assess the damage the wolves did. My mind's planning steps ahead already as I peel the hands off the bottle and scrub it off. I can probably sew up intestine. Spleen we can resect. Liver regenerates, but infection? That'll kill him. Back in the day, or forward in the day, or sideways along space-time, we'd give something broad-spectrum to cover anaerobes from the gut, gram-positives from the skin, and gram-negs from the hospital. Imipenum? No, that doesn't cover enterococci. And he needs that for sure. We gave Cephazolin IV for basic surgical prophylaxis. Can I steal something like that from some warehouse? Or grow penicillin from mold? That's later. For now, we're breathing. Me, the goo kid, the man in the other room, the clock tick tick ticking, the slow rhythmic echoing moan as the ghost passes away. Even the apocalypse itself, in the cyclical flickering of memory and progression as the objects beside me flit through time and back, we're all breathing. Oops, no more breathing. Pots sputtering to a boil. Time's up. Let's go, go, go. Snatch the bottle. Syringe. Needle. Suture scissors. Thread. Wash my hands like I'm trying to scrub off skin. Pour salt water in the bottle. Pour, pour, pour. Good. Done. Go. I dash back into the other room, hurtling the blob and the corpse in memory of high school track as I skid to my knees by the wolfman's side. Boiling water took too long, his breathings even faster and more shallow than when I left him. Extremities colder and clammy, and now he's non-responsive. Well, that's just as well. I can't have you awake while I work on that. I mutter, nodding to his torn belly as I find a vein in the crook of his elbow. I stuff the bottle nipple into the disembodied, plungerless syringe, and it sticks. It'll drip all right. He's got good veins. I tap his inner elbow, stroke the bulge of blood vessel, line up the needle shaft, and push. Tension. And, see? It slides right in. That's what she said. <sighs> oh gosh. Dear you, please help me. I see the next three hours stretching in front of me, three hours of running back and forth to fill this baby bottle and empty it into his veins, three hours of struggling through crappy one-handed needlework to close up the sources of bleeding and infection in his belly, three hours of knowing this isn't how this should be done. I should have gloves for Pete's sake. I mean, hell, why am I even alive? And now my knees ache where they touch the floor because I'm old, too? <sighs> One thing at a time. Fill the bottle. Press on his wrist again to check that stroke of life. Bottle's empty. Fill it again. Where were we? It all blends together. You're lucky you've got all this adipose tissue. I tell him as his heart rate slows and strengthens, and his limbs warm again. We're no longer hypovolemic. 
If you walked into my clinic, I'd say lose some weight for your heart. But for now, I think these layers protected your innards from the wolves. Mostly. There's a gaping, oozing swath of liver visible, shimmering wet red-brown in the dim light. I'll get to that when I'm done cleaning up the damage down south. The leg wolves could only reach, well, the lowest ends of his torso. He's leaking feces onto the bed. The lower half of his right gluteus dangles in raw threads of mangled meat. The pubic area doesn't look much better. Femoral artery intact somehow, that's why he's not dead. I'm dabbing, dabbing, dabbing this alcohol-soaked sheet against his torn body, cleaning, using my tools as much as possible, and my hands as little as I can, straining my eyes to pick out the true sources of bleeding amidst all the look-alike reds so I can tie them shut. Oh, time to fill the baby bottle again. I try to keep up the dashing and running, but I'm so worn, so tired. I think I hurt something jumping. Old guys don't jump, I guess. Is this my hell? Like Sisyphus, one step at a time, rolling this man to improvement, only to have him roll back down again? His hypotension's returned. The pulse doesn't push against my fingers so much as brush, like lips blowing, whispering his circulatory collapse. Nothing I do is mattering. Somewhere between the time I finish the rehydration boluses and start on maintenance fluid, which means sometime after I stop squeezing the bottle and start just holding it up, he stirs enough to speak. It's quiet, he says. Yes, we're safe for now. The dogs on my... They're gone. They're not coming back. <sighs> Thank you. Thank you so much. He closes his eyes. His head lulls slowly from side to side as he takes time to breathe. Why are you helping me? I pause. I never thought to ask that question. I never had the time to change mindset. I'm still in hospital mode because I was in hospital mode when this started. What other mode should I be in? Suddenly he reminds me of our present why, of apocalypse, of future without friends and family this brutish, short future populated by nightmare beings, where I lack even the comfort of real memories. My delirious imagination senses the rise of ancient gods, the ones who called for human sacrifice and bloodletting, and I doubt the idols appreciate someone who only prays to you. They don't want doctors among the damned. So why do I damn myself? You need help, I say. His lips flutter. I expect him to ask if he's going to die. They always do. And they never understand. A doctor is not a prophet. I don't know if you're going to die. I don't even know if I'm going to die. Literally every prediction I could speak is bound by probabilities not nearly as sure as faith. But when you express any degree of uncertainty to a patient, they think you don't know what you're talking about. They have the right to ask, and I always do my best to answer. He doesn't ask. I keep working. His pituitary must be releasing enough encephalins to make a horse high, because he's not screaming in pain, just breathing and breathing with the occasional soft groan. This is a bad sign, but we're pushing onward together. You keep up that breathing. You're doing great. He breathes. I dab. He breathes. I sew. 
He breathes. I rest my elbow so I can tilt the bottle up higher. What are you doing? He asks presently. Giving you liquids, like a transfusion, and stopping your bleeding. Basics I learned from medical school. I drop the hint to give him confidence. What's your blood type, by the way? I don't know. <sighs> That's too bad. I'd like to give you whole blood. If I were O negative, I could just use my own without knowing yours. But I'm O positive. Just one antibody wrong. I'm sorry. I pause to sigh. <sighs> I may not be the best one to save your life. You're the one who tried. I half smile. For him, not for me. Because a dark joke about doing and doing, not because there is no try, sits in my throat, choking me with shame. My mouth's dry and sticky. My left forearm burns like I've been fapping an elephant, and I'm dizzy. <sighs> I can't save this guy if I faint. I'll be right back, okay? Okay. He's talked now, and he's got a stable pulse, so at least I've brought him back from death's door to death's porch? I can slough back to the kitchen, wash my hands, and pour a cup of the IV fluid salt water for myself. I do. Chug. Breathe. It feels better. <laughs> it's the simple things. The bedroom clock stops ticking. I turn, rooted to the floor, and look into the bedroom with my heart gone the way of the clock. He's dead. The hell? I breathe. He's gaunt, white-haired, the color of a mucus stain on white paper. His cheeks sunken and lips stretched over a grimace of yellow teeth. The once plump belly droops to the sides, wrinkled but hardened like someone spilled melted ice cream in the freezer and it refroze. The makeshift band-aids on his stumps fray, threadbare. Once bright blood stains, now coffee and dull, and sitting on his mummified chest, smiling at me, is the ghost, her legs crossed and hands folded, a modern businesswoman in a meeting. What the hell? I squeak. I squeak because I'm holding back a scream, a scream that's going to have me killed, a scream only you can hear. You, who watch this and do not stop it. You, who clutch my heart and hold my sanity in balance even when I just want to scream and leave all this sanity behind and let it all go in sweet oblivion. Why did you do that? My mouth runs softly pushing past the throbbing in my temples and the burning drum in my chest. I try to talk to her, and not to you. Why did you mummify that man, honey? She mouths something and flickers like a projector screen. She talks like this for a long time, a silent film, serious and sane and thoughtful. Her eyes focus beyond me, speaking to another audience. In another time, she solidifies for a moment. Her eyes meet mine, and insane terror flickers in them just for an instant before she fades again. She coughs and regains her composure and continues to give her silent speech. When it's over, she rises to her feet, waves, and walks out of the room with the straight back of a first woman president.
The clock begins ticking again. My logical brain rushes to protect me. It's a defense mechanism we study in our psych rotations. Intellectualization. And I don't try to stop it as analysis, conclusion, diagnosis streams through my head. The ghost calmed down after fully mummifying something living. Perhaps in the future I can bring an animal substitute for her kind to mummify to save my future patients. Is that sacrifice to an idol? Or is it like the ritual safety checklist before an airplane takes off? The ritual protects us from the forces of nature. Is it any different from the way we learn to manipulate the ancient gods with gifts? You are the only one who could never be manipulated. <sighs> no. Stop. She's not a god, or if we're all some form of fallen image of the Most High, she is a god, just as much as I am, just not the capital G god, right? Because only you are that. Are we her nightmares? Or are we nothing to her at all? I stand as frozen as the mummy, my brains stumbling over its own unfinished thoughts. Is she living in another time with no concept of us whom she hurts? Did I used to live there? When I sat on my hard plastic chair in morning rounds, was the plastic a human being I drained of life? Do alternate dimensions prey on each other, unwittingly, like bacteria on a wound? What then is the wound? They say the old gods arose to destroy us. They say this horror's only a nightmare. And if we die, we wake up. They say you abandoned us when we abandoned you. Like a flower wilts without the sun, so fades our reality without you. I suspect they're all right in some way. A squelch breaks me out of my dazed reverie. Oh, come on, don't do that, I say. In the hours that have elapsed, the blob-teen baby thing has digested through the puppy heads, leaving white skulls trailing behind it as it slurps across the floor, and now it's decided to try the corpse propped up in the doorway. That can't be good for you, I say. I half-heartedly shuffle to stop the blob, but it gets there first. The moment it absorbs a finger, it's vomiting like a baby with hypertrophic pyloric sphincter. Flesh-colored liquid flies off its front end spurting across the room. Now it shudders as it sheds all over, melting. I don't know what to do to save it. Death wins two out of three, I guess, but I'm digging through my pockets for an anti-emetic tab anyway. Maybe I can help. <laughs> I don't know. Here's a tablet. Crap. I can't get the pack open. I didn't notice my fingers were this arthritic. <sighs> Come on. I hear a whimper and look up. Well then... A naked kid sits in a pool of beige scum where the blob was. She blinks up at me, totally confused, slimy and dripping, but maintaining one shape. Stand up, I say. She stands and does not bulge or wrinkle. Walk that way a few steps. She does, slowly, eyes wide, without collapsing. I dig out my penlight and shine it in each eye from the distance. Pupils. Symmetric, round, equally receptive to light. Open your mouth and say, ah. She doesn't say ah, but she does open. Strands of fleshy goop crisscross her oropharynx like fat spider webs. I reach behind me for the spoon on the counter and stretch it towards her, over the corpse, through the doorway. What's that for? She asks, licking her mouth and gumming through the stickiness with distaste. To scrape that stuff out of your mouth. Open wide? 
The mucus winds easily around the spoon. It's not flesh. It's not fixed. It's vomit. She's cured? I think whatever chemicals preserving the mummy signaled your stem cells to finally differentiate, I say. I finish my physical exam, gingerly, respectfully, a little frightened of her, and then we find her some clothes from the rough chest of drawers. Tanner stage two, I think, between 10 and 11 years old. Normal mental status exam, except she can't remember what's happened to her. Soon she's giggling and trying to tell me a hundred things. A child saved, perhaps, from the horrors of the apocalypse by reverting like a jellyfish to a pseudo-embryonic state. You hungry? I ask. I'm really full. I smile, a real smile, because the grotesqueness of everything she's eaten seems sardonic, humorous. I won't tell her now. When I do tell her about the world's evils, I'll make the tale funny, with meaning, framed for her mental health. You don't hear a lot of stories about people having a grand old time in the apocalypse, but it's all perspective. Given the right resilience training, she could be healthy, hopeful, happy. Happiness is a choice for the healthy. So I'm one for three. That's a failing grade. <laughs> Worse than my biochemistry exam. I'm the worst doctor ever, but I'm all we've got. Weak daylight, or a brighter moon, flickers through the black clouds outside as I cover the fat man with a sheet and whisper a prayer. The child and I step out into the cobblestone street. My watch ticks without a pause, and there's no sign of the world I once knew. We don't know what happened to reality, and news doesn't travel fast in total catastrophe zones. But for me, the apocalypse is over. The aftermath begins now. I'm restless, gazing about us, my fingers tight on the leather handle of my doctor bag and the wood of my scythe. The girl tugs my ratty leather coat. Are you okay? I just need to heal someone. You can heal me. <laughs> I hope so. Because that, that alone, in memory of you, is keeping me alive. that was our story. I hope you liked it. The Lovecraftian mood of this story was just so excellent. Before we go, remember that this podcast is part of the Christian Geek Central Network. For more great content and community, visit ChristianGeekCentral.com. Please remember to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter, blog about us, leave us a nice review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you find us, support us on Patreon, and tell your friends. Closing out the show is the song Resist the Eclipse by Death Therapy. I think you'll agree, it's a great complement to the theme of apocalypse medicine. And if you like what you hear, you can head over to www.solidstaterecords.com deaththerapy and check out the band. Or you can find them on Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Music, and a whole host of other music services. Check the show notes for some direct links. Seriously, I purchased the pre-order vinyl of this album and I was not disappointed. And Death Therapy's experimental groove metal is no stranger to the Untold Podcast. We featured their song, Wake Me When I'm Dead, back in episode 58, Slaughterhouse. 
The Untold Podcast has been funded by Jason Brannon, Jen Finelli, Fred Heimbaugh, Clayton Webb, Parker J. Cole, Lauren Van Arendonk Ba, Mike and Andra Williams, Spirit Blade Productions, The Retro Rewind Podcast, Rudy Diaz, Jackie Hanna, Deborah Dunson, Amanda St. John, and Nathan and Casey Butler. And I'm Nathan James Norman, reminding you, a doctor is not a prophet. Start. We must resist this. Incident.